you live in Beirut. For Beirutis, it probably wasn't surprising to people to see you leading this current project that you're on. You have a nickname, an evocative nickname, the Garbage King of Beirut. How did you get that title? I call myself the Garbage Man, not the Garbage King. I don't like royalty that much, actually. Recycling has been Ziad Abishakir's calling for decades. And in Lebanon, which has faced years of crisis over its garbage, it was a much-needed skill. Ziad's the CEO of the company Cedar Environmental, and he got the Garbage King nickname from foreign news coverage of his work. But now, Lebanon is dealing with a different kind of waste. Thousands and thousands of tons of debris and rubble from the Beirut port explosion on August 4th. Today, we're looking at one small way of cleaning it up. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. As we speak, about 100 days after the blast, there's a huge issue with debris right now. They still have them sitting in a plot near the Beirut port, and no one knows what to do with it anymore. It's been 111 days, to be exact, since the blast killed more than 200 people and injured thousands more. And in that time, Lebanon's government has resigned, and an investigation has started. Who knew that more than 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate had been stored for six years at the port? And why didn't anyone do something about it? It's not clear that's really going to be resolved from the investigation. It looks possible that no high-ranking officials are going to be charged. Meanwhile, there's still no new government, the economy is paralyzed by a financial crisis, and the aid being offered by the IMF and other governments is on hold unless Lebanon implements serious reforms. It's a familiar form of political paralysis for Lebanon. But now, there's also the long-running economic crisis, another wave of COVID, and the need to get all the damaged houses ready for winter. We're talking to Ziad because this recycling initiative is an example of the real engine of Beirut's reconstruction, civil society. Since it started, more than 100 tons of glass from the explosion have been recycled. Since the blast, we know and we've seen evidence of the amazing work that the Lebanese people have been doing to clean up their own neighborhoods in the aftermath of that explosion. So I wanted to talk to you specifically about the glass. In those first few days after the explosion, what did the streets look like? When the blast happened, I was in the Badaro area and the building really shook very hard and I could hear all the glass shattering. 10 or 15 minutes afterwards, I went down on the streets to check and see the extent of the damage or if anyone in the neighborhood needed any help. And in my neighborhood, the extent of shattered glass was phenomenal. You could see up to 10 inches of broken glass on the sidewalks. And at the same time, you could hear the the glass crackling and then, you know, falling down on the streets. Glass was everywhere. Everywhere you walked, you had glass. In the days after the explosion, volunteer groups came together, one after another. Many of them had been active during Lebanon's revolution in 2019. Ziad had already worked with two of them, 
And they started focusing on the glass. Windows, doors, mirrors, every pane in the area near the blast had essentially shattered at once. It was being found in people's beds, in jars of rice, inside shoes, not to mention covering the streets. We had teams picking up wood, others picking up metals, other teams picking up just construction rubble. And I was working with the team that was supposed to be collecting glass. So after we made our first collection, I sent it as a sample to the factories in Tripoli. Tripoli is Lebanon's second largest city, about an hour north of Beirut. And it was a good move to do that because the first sample we sent, they immediately came back to us and they said, listen, we cannot work with this. This glass has been picked up from the streets and it's mixed with a lot of rocks and sand and a lot of impurities. It will take forever to clean it up. We cannot work with it. So then, as you mentioned, it was civil society that picked up the pieces. You all realized that you were going to have to sort this glass by hand. Talk to me about what that looked like. After the feedback we got from the factories, I uh, recorded a four-minute video. Uh, uh, explaining to people that not all the glass we will be able to recycle. We will only take the glass that fell inside, not on the streets. So anyone who was willing to recycle their window panels, we were going to put forth a public WhatsApp number where they can send a location pin. And people responded tremendously to that. They started sending locations, sending pictures, some of them even calling, saying, hey, uh, I have glass for you, why don't you come and, and pick it up? The first few days were really very hectic for us. But the recycling teams had another setback when they sent their next batch of glass to the factories in Tripoli. Again, they rejected it. They said, listen, it's not as dirty as the ones that you picked up from the streets, but this is still dirty. It's going to cost us money to inspect it, remove the debris from it. And this is something we cannot do right now. And even though at the time I did not have the budget, my immediate response was, we will cover the wages of you hiring two extra people to do that. And I did not have the money for it. But somehow I, I figured that I will get the money somehow. This was too important to, to let it fail right now. Who decided what it would actually be turned into and what did it get turned into? At the beginning, my aim was to just send this glass as free raw materials for the glass factories. All I wanted them to do was a struggling local industries. I just wanted them to benefit from free raw materials. And in the line of the discussion, I very casually asked, how can we help you more? What do you need? And they said, uh, help us sell more of our stuff. Help us find new markets. We need to work. So I sat down with the factory owners and we designed a, a line of about seven or eight products. And I said, listen, I don't have money from the initiative because I barely have enough money to cover the cost of your people who are inspecting the glass. But I'm willing to take a personal chance on this and I will try to sell it on the market in Beirut. 
And every profit that it will make, we will come back and buy more from you. And this is how it started. I thought that I was throwing away about 10 million liras. 10 million liras were, at the time, they were worth about $6,000. I said, you know, I don't care. I, I need to help these people. They helped me uh, achieve this dream of recycling all this. They helped me. I need to help them. So how well did it sell? Oh, we sold out everything we bought from them in a matter of one week or something like that. We had to shut down our website for like three weeks to stave off people from ordering online. That's incredible. Why do you think it appealed to people so much? First of all, these were simple designs and uh, this was something that we all grew up seeing and uh, lately they disappeared from the market. Like the traditional Lebanese jug, which we call the brie, it wasn't as proliferant as it used to be before. The jugs and jars came from about 100 tons of glass that was able to be recycled. But that's still just a small fraction. Ziad estimates there were about 4,000 tons shattered. And the cost of rebuilding Beirut is estimated to be up to $15 billion. The scale of the problem is enormous. But within that, these small initiatives are keeping the city together until that rebuilding does happen. The fact that this was coming from the glass, from the shattered glass, there was some kind of a poetic justice to all of this that you could bomb us or you could, whatever, you could try to harm us and we will always find a way of making something good out of it and something that connects all of us Lebanese. And that's The Take. If you want to see the glass for yourself, just check out our episode description. You'll see links to more there. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Amy Walters, Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilve, Oni Wohacha, Nagin Odiai, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Taimur Azhari. We'll be back on Wednesday. <laughs>